So I, I have to feel a connection to the people that I'm working with. I feel like I need to be pushed and challenged. I really enjoy being around a team that sort of each bring unique strengths so that I, I, I feel like they make me better. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Kelly Walder. Kelly is the Vice President of Marketing for G Suite at Google. Prior to Google, he was the Executive Vice President and General Manager at Qualtrics. And prior to that, Kelly spent 14 years at Microsoft, where he was the General Manager of Office 365 and held a variety of corporate marketing roles, including the Global Product Marketing Lead for the Commercial and consumer portfolio of products. Kelly and I met and developed a conversation on a flight from Seattle to San Jose, I believe, and it was one of those fascinating explorations that felt incomplete, and we decided to continue the dialogue here on this show. Kelly, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Aviv. It's great to be here. It's, it's fantastic to reconnect after a number of months. Indeed. So we are actually recording this when most of the world is still working from home, given the pandemic. And since we have spoken, you have now taken a new role in a new company. So the obvious first question is, what's it like to, in this environment where everybody's working from home, to uh, get into a new company and onboarded with a new team? Well, it's definitely a very unique experience and I hope maybe just a once in a life uh, experience to be onboarded during a pandemic. Yeah, there are a couple of aspects to it that are certainly, I think, challenging, you know, as a new employee and a new leader inside of a, an organization, especially an organization the size of Google. But there also have been some surprising, I think, elements that maybe weren't quite as challenging as I initially thought. So the, the things that have made it harder, I've actually never met anyone on my team in person. So it's all been through Google Meet video calls. You miss out, I think, on a lot of the body language and that interaction that happens from those in-person discussions. You also miss some of those, you know, conversations that take place near the near the coffee maker or, you know, in between meetings. So so that's been, I think, a challenge. The the thing that has been surprising in, in a way that I wasn't expecting was that because we're all working from home, and we're all on video calls, in some ways, it's been an equalizer. So if I were trying to dial in, let's say from Seattle, and the majority of my team is down in the Bay Area, I think I would really be challenged to try to get in on the conversation and keep up with what's happening in the room. But because we're all, again, having this digital interaction, it's actually been not as difficult to sort of connect and understand what's happening in these conversations. And then I think the second thing I'd say is, is I feel like there's maybe only uh, maybe 20% fidelity lost with the video, 
And so I've been surprised. You can actually pick up people's personalities, their sense of humor, some of the facial expressions just through video. And I wasn't expecting that to be the case where I could actually start to get a sense for people's, again, humor and, and, and who they are as individuals just by some of the, the visuals. What are you trying to do to solve to the 20% loss? How are you trying to solve to that? It's a great question. That's been a, a I think, required a fair amount of creativity and, and some willingness to experiment in, in ways that at first I was not really sure how they would how they would land. So let me give you an example. When I was at Qualtrics, we would do virtual team lunches. And so we would all, you know, basically from 12 to 1, we would allocate some time. There'd be really no topic. We would just get together and eat virtually together and have a conversation. And at, at first, I thought that would be pretty weird, but it actually was pretty natural. And, and I found that the team really appreciated that. So, you know, similar things at Google where we're having happy hours, where we're doing things like having a, a magician come in virtually and, and lead us through sort of a fun team building exercise. But it certainly requires Uh, like I said, a fair amount of creativity, as well as being open to try some things that maybe on the surface feel pretty unnatural and unorthodox. So the two practices I've seen that work well, you highlighted them. One is designing unstructured time, whether it's, it's lunchtime together or just space for an, an open dialogue that, that's not following a specifically targeted agenda. And the other best practice is structuring enough one-on-one -on -one time, especially when you come new to a team. It's one thing having the team, whatever app you use, Google Meet or, or anything else, the one-on-one -on -one in these mediums, you can actually quickly get to know each other. So broad question, I know you're just coming into this role, but the way you know yourself, I always like to ask on the front end of all the things you do at work, what do you enjoy the most? What uh, really excites and, and energizes you? Yeah, for me, it's this combination of things that kind of almost like three legs of a stool that have to be there for me. Otherwise, I think over the years, I've found that I, you know, my passion and my interest starts to wane a little bit. And then I get curious about, well, what else is out there? But the things that I enjoy the most, the sort of three legs of the stool, if you will, first, it starts with the people. So I, I have to feel a connection to the people that I'm working with. I feel like I need to be pushed and challenged. I really enjoy being around a team that sort of each bring unique strengths so that I, I, I feel like they make me better. But so it starts with being around people that you, you have a connection with and that you have a shared goal and, and mission that you're on. The second, and happy to talk more about this as well, but I love building things. And, and so the, for me, I, I derive a lot of joy and satisfaction out of being part of a team that is, you know, designing, building, marketing, selling products. And so I've just decided over the years that that's kind of my thing. I like to be involved in product. And then the third is those two things have to come together. The team, the people you're working with, the products that you're building, that you're bringing to the marketplace. I have to feel like I'm making a difference and having an impact. And I've had experiences where I've worked with a great team and we've built um, some really great products, but I didn't see the traction and the impact uh, with customers in the marketplace and the business. And, and over time, 
that for me was not super fulfilling. So those three things are all working together, the people, the product and the impact, then I'm a pretty happy person and you know, very energized. So we want to unpack and go deeper on, on each of these three. Let me ask first about people. Was that natural or you discovered along your journey that people and building a high impact team and high functioning team around you is, is going to be natural for you and you're going to be energized by that? When, at what point in your career are you consciously saying, I am a people person, I'm a people leader, this is part of what energizes me? Describe to me that discovery. Yeah, for me, this is not something I sort of went into my professional career knowing about myself or knowing that it would be a source of satisfaction and energy. So I think it came later in my career where I started to realize that the people that I worked with, the teams that I worked on were really important to me. And, and, and initially, I would say, you know, my first job out of college, I, went, I was a chemical engineer an undergrad, and I went to work for Dow Chemical, and I was very excited about being able to work for an actual chemical company. And so I went into that thinking that it would really be about the function that I was performing, which was chemical engineering, that would, I would derive the most satisfaction out of my job. So I worked at Dow for five years before I left to go get my MBA. And in those five years, again, I was very focused on the engineering components of my job. And not consciously thinking about the teams that I was on, the people that I was working with. I mean, of course, I was aware that I was working with other people, but I, I wasn't tuned into kind of how important the team around me was. Then I went and got my MBA. And so I took two years off and did that full time. And that, I think, was a very big awakening for me in terms of being just surrounded with so many people that had these big aspirations and goals and, and passions to quite frankly, go, go try to change the world and change the, the business environments in which they were working in. And so that is, I'd say the first beginnings of really deeply thinking about being surrounded by very, very talented, highly motivated people and sort of seeing where they could help take me by just being a part of those study groups and those, those smaller teams and then being in, in the classroom with them for two years on a daily basis. So I would say then after that, I ended up going to work for Microsoft. And that was um, early in my career there. The way that Microsoft sort of functions, a, a quick little antidote, was at Dow Chemical, people would associate with the business and the product lines that they worked in. So they would say, I work in the plastics division. I work in the specialty chemicals division. So they would, they would orient themselves when they met a new employee based on the product and the division they were in. When I went to Microsoft, that's not how it's structured. It was, which leader did you work for? And so the, the way in which work got done was really centered and grounded on the people and, and less so in terms of like some organizational or divisional hierarchy and structure. And so that was where I started to clue into, wow, that the team that you're surrounded by and, and who you're working with on a daily basis really matters. The other thing I would share is this back when I joined in 2005, Microsoft was in a period where it was common for there to be call it multiple bets placed for the same opportunity in the marketplace. And so you, you sometimes would have multiple teams that were working 
to achieve a certain outcome. And then you quickly realize that, you know, having a great team was going to increase the probability of your group, you know, being successful. So I would say that's sort of where at first I started to realize just how important being on and being part of a great team started to really kick in. And the insight from these stories is how much we are shaped by our experiences. In, in the example you offer, your experience at Harvard with those people around you is, is really becoming a life-centering experience for you. It, it reshapes a set of values and importances for you. It's a major transition to come up initially as a, as a chemical engineer in Dow and then make a transition to Microsoft. How, how did you rationalize that? And what was the narrative in your mind when you were making that transition? You're right. That was a major transition to move, you know, from, I mean, my background, like I said, was in chemical engineering, but I actually worked in a chemical plant for a number of years. And then I, then I was part of a managing a global supply chain. So to make that transition you know, functionally out of sort of the manufacturing operations role in a different industry into marketing and part of tech. It was a huge transition. For me, a couple of things. One was while I was getting my MBA, I had the opportunity to, in your first year, they prescribe, you have to, to everyone takes the same set of classes. You have zero choice. So there's a baseline curriculum that everybody goes through. And the second year, it's the opposite. You could pick any class that you want, provided that there's a seat available and there's a whole bidding system and whatnot that goes into how you pick your second year classes. And I became really interested in marketing during my first year. And so I loaded up on marketing courses my second year. So the first way in which I went about trying to make this transition was to become functionally proficient in the marketing function and sort of not leave behind, but move on from the supply chain, the operations, the manufacturing components of my career. The second thing, as I was looking to move into a different industry, is I put quite a bit of thought into the type of industry and the dynamics behind it, especially related to growth. And and so when I looked at the technology sector and, and the types of opportunities I thought I would have in my career, I had decided that I wanted to be in a high growth environment just because I thought the learning would be faster. There, quite frankly, just be more opportunities. And so that's what led me to target a company like Microsoft to actually make the transition. Uh, two things had to happen. One is, is that I had to convince the people at Microsoft that there was a reason to hire this chemical engineer who had never done a market really, and certainly not in tech. And then, then the second thing is, is, you know, if I could convince them that they should take this bet, I had to have a plan about how I was going to go about learning how to do that role, that function inside of a company like Microsoft. And so that was certainly a big moment for me in my career and, and had lots of challenges, but also lots of rewards. So two questions to build there. First, what was it initially that excited you about marketing that made you I want to load into that space and then describe how you then evolved your career in, in Microsoft. Yeah, for me, one, one thing that I, maybe if I go back just a little bit further, I grew up in a small town named Walla Walla, called Walla Walla in Eastern Washington. And both of my parents uh, grew up on wheat farms. And so in my family, we have a long line of farmers. And so there's, there's been, and I've described for me, this innate desire to kind of 
build something and, and, and to work the land, so to speak. And so my, my father was a chemical engineer. My older sister was a chemical engineer. And so I kind of grew up wanting and knowing that I wanted to make things. And so that's what I pursued in my undergraduate studies. Then when I joined Dow Chemical, like I said, I worked inside of a chemical plant, putting to use all of the skills that I had learned while I was in college. But I'd say about the second year in, I actually started to realize that that wasn't my passion, meaning every day doing production troubleshooting and, and that sort of thing. And what I really was interested in was business. And this idea of like, well, why, like, why are we making these products? Mm. Who buys them? What do they go into? What do customers use them for? And so for me, there was this moment where I felt like it was much more interesting to understand how all these dots were connected and, and like what's happening at a broader scale. So when I went to get my MBA, again, that first year, you get exposed to all these different functions of business, finance, marketing, operations, leadership. And it was in the marketing class where I felt like it gave me the broadest view of business. Everything from the value proposition of the product or the good or the service that you're building to, how do you price it? Well, the four Ps, what place? Like, where are you distributing it? How do you promote it? And so marketing for me was the best representation of general management and running, doing business, if you will. And so that's what drew me into marketing is because I felt like it gave me the opportunity to flex across all these different functions, think broadly and think holistically about a business. That's fascinating. So the inner core passion is really connecting all these dots to understand business model, how businesses work and all that. Then come to Microsoft, you then arrive at Microsoft and how are you developing your career there? Well, initially, the uh, interesting question, I had a couple different opportunities. What had happened is, is my wife and I, we met in, in college and undergrad and then I moved to the Bay Area back in the, the mid-90s. And that was an interesting experience, by the way, to be working for Dow Chemical while the whole dot-com bubble was forming. So I was kind of around tech, but I wasn't in tech. And then went back, got my MBA, then, then went into sales and lived in Chicago for a couple of years after I got my MBA. And so what really brought me back to Seattle was my wife and I had our first child. And so there was after 10 years of kind of being on the road, I just had this awakening that said, I, you know, I need to move home. This is kind of where we want to raise our family. And so to be honest, my whole thinking was, how do I get into a different industry? I knew I wanted to do marketing, but I really wanted to get back to Seattle. And so as I got going at Microsoft, I ultimately decided to join the Exchange corporate marketing team. So Exchange, that, that's their corporate email server product. I knew nothing about really software. I knew nothing about the corporate email market. But what I knew going through the interview process was I was, this goes back to that first pillar, I was blown away with the people that I met on my interview loop. And so I ended up, you know, in terms of my career, I ultimately made the decision to join the exchange marketing team. How did you persuade them to hire you? You knew nothing about well, yeah, I did a couple of things. I, I did, I'll be honest, I did a lot of sort of prep for the interviews and, and went back to some of my old case studies. There were some, a number of Microsoft case studies that we had done in different classes. And, and I, I had a few colleagues or, or classmates that were at Microsoft. So I did a lot of like prep going into it. 
to try to make sure I could be as prepared as possible. And then the second thing that I did was I tried to pull out prior career experiences that I thought would be relevant, you know, in a marketing role at Microsoft. But yeah, no, there was definitely a lot of prep work that went into that. And then a lot of just sort of crossing my fingers that they would, that they would want to take, quite frankly, take a bet on me because I hadn't done it before. But so I, I decided I had a couple different opportunities and I decided to join the exchange marketing group. Going back to, I just was very, very impressed with the team and the people that I met. And I just felt like I want to be part of that group, not really knowing much about email marketing. And so I ended up, my first job at Microsoft was, I was hired as the product manager for hosted email. And the truth is, is I think I was just very fortunate in that I happened to join a team and a business and be given an opportunity to focus on what was a very small part of the exchange business at that point, but was growing rapidly and what would become essentially their cloud email service. And so I was just so excited to be at a company like Microsoft and be doing marketing and working on what I thought was a really interesting space, hosted email. So describe the journey from there to leading the Office 365. It was one of those, I think, unique opportunities where, so I was at Microsoft the first six months. My job was to go out and try to, to grow what was, again, a very small part of the business at that time. Exchange was a multi-billion dollar product and, and their hosted email business was much smaller than that. And so, my, but it was this wonderful experience because I got to wear every hat. I got to do pricing. I got to do messaging and positioning. I got to work with the product team when they would listen to me because uh, it was such a small part of the business. So I spent six months kind of flying around the world and meeting with partners and customers and, and, and trying to understand how we would accelerate this business. And then at the end of six months, the corporate vice president for the exchange engineering team got very interested in the trends that he saw with hosted email. And so there was a pivotal meeting where every month we would review the business results for the hosted email business. And he essentially asked the question, does anybody think that we should do this ourselves? Because at the time we were relying on posters and, and telcos to go actually run exchange. And, and so I had six months of ideas that just kind of came flowing out in that meeting and, and made sort of the case that we should, we should do this. We should get into this space. And I just remember he looked at me and he smiled. He ended up being one of my key mentors as I, as I moved through my career at Microsoft. And he smiled and said, you seem to have a lot of passion around this. I want to meet every other week until you figure out the business case. So I got to then spend the next six months working with a small group of people to go and build and write the business case for what would become Office 365. And then I was part of the team that got to sort of start it up within Microsoft. And then we incubated it and then it scaled and, and it just happened to sort of be, I think, one of these products that from business case, you know, to very large business, I got to be part of that whole journey and it was just an incredible ride. It's one of those uh, rare situations of being in the right place at the right time and bringing to the table the right ingredients to actually participate in an extraordinary ride. I totally agree. I will say it was one of these moments where there was a group of us that, was in, that were involved in the early days of getting Office 365 off the ground. And in many ways, we were probably 
you know, too inexperienced and there were a bunch of things we didn't know, but we were naive enough to just keep going. And, and so it ended up, like you said, right place, right time, but also again, being surrounded by a really, really fantastic group of people. And so we just kind of kept going. If you need to distill the, the one or two or three key lessons, key insights from this extraordinary ride all the way to leading this team of, with Office 365, what's the one or two top ideas, top insights, top lessons that you distill? I think there are a couple of things. One would be the, the power, if you will, of having a shared vision and a deep commitment to the opportunity that you're jointly working on. There were so many times in the early days and even the mid days where there were so many obstacles and so many reasons that we could have maybe just given up. But, but we, we kept encouraging and fueling each other because we all believed in that mission. We just believed in the opportunity and we felt like it was going to be a better way for customers to experience the, the software and, and to be able to grow their own businesses. So there's this one, I think, really powerful lesson for me, which was around the importance of having a shared mission, shared belief and commitment to each other. So that's one. I think the second interesting learning for me was if you want it bad enough, meaning, you know, the team that you're on, you, you can actually overcome um, superior products that are in the marketplace. Maybe some people who have more experience and knowledge, but if you, if you're willing to put in the effort and you're committed, you know, to, to, to driving success, you can actually drive an outcome that on the surface you'd be, there's no way that this team, that this product, that this business should be here. And there's plenty of examples, I think, in the marketplace today that if you just sort of sized it and assessed it on paper, you'd be like, there's no way that this, this product or this team or this group should be successful. And I think there's something from the sheer desire and commitment that you can overcome things that on the surface don't seem possible. That's beautiful. Let me ask the question now from the other side. Why do great ideas great product ideas, why do they fail? Yeah, I think there's a couple of key reasons. And I certainly over my career, a number of companies have either been involved in teams that came up with some, you know, really, really interesting, compelling ideas, or just got to see other teams do that and be like, wow, that is a great idea. And I think that they fail for a number of reasons. Most of my career, most has been spent in large organizations and one of the challenges that I think that large organizations have is that you have a great idea, but you're not able to align and sort of gain commitment from your key stakeholders. Then the idea and understand their incentives. I can't tell you how many times where, you know, you might get three out of five groups that you need to, to sort of want to go do something but if one or two key groups doesn't have the right incentives or they don't really understand the opportunity or they just don't agree with it, it doesn't go anywhere. And so I think there's this idea of making sure that you have buy-in alignment and you understand the incentives that exist inside of a, an organization. I've seen many, many ideas sort of die on the vine, so to speak. I think a second reason is poor execution around a number of teams that have this amazing ability to generate ideas, but they can't actually translate them into action. And some of that, I think, just comes that it requires you know, different skill sets when you think about how you build your team. 
Some of it comes down, I think, to going back to commitment, like wanting to see something through versus move on to the next big idea. But there's this, I think there's something to be said for execution and just, you know, getting behind the idea. Third, I've seen some great ideas get um, not translated to business success because quite frankly, the attention to detail, the quality, like the thing that came out at the end of the factory line, so to speak, was not what was originally contemplated. And so you didn't actually deliver, you know, on, on the vision and the idea. And um, it was, you know, a poor version of that. So then what would you say make for a great product launch? And if there is an example that you feel uh, free to share, how you brought together the components that enabled a great product launch and, and what then that, how does it look and how did you experience that? Yeah. You know, a great product launch, I guess a couple of learnings too, um, and I'll answer your question around a great one, but I feel like over the years I've seen, um, you, you, you have to have these two pieces come together, I think, to really truly have a great product launch. And those two pieces are, first of all, having a great product really helps. And, and I've, I've had to market some products that were maybe not so great. And then the inverse of that is, or the other side of the coin is, You can have a great product, but if you haven't put in the thought and the effort and build a comprehensive, cohesive plan as a marketer, you're really doing your product and your engineering team a huge disservice because they built something great, but the world doesn't know about it. Maybe it's not positioned the correct way. Maybe you don't really deeply understand who your target audience is. And so you market it to the wrong people or the wrong customer base. So I think for me, ideally, the truly, truly great product launches are when you've built something that's great that delivers on the quality and the functionality and what it's intended to do from a value prop perspective and then you've really been creative and thoughtful about how you're bringing it to market and when those two things happen it's just i think really really incredible to see you know what you can achieve with customers and in, in the marketplace i think for me you know as, as a as somebody who's in marketing who's in tech to, to me there's just no question that Steve Jobs, I think, was just the master at this. And I remember where I was at when the iPhone um, was launched. And it was just one of those like, whoa, the product was incredible. The, the, the way in which he you know, did the launch, it just was all of those things. And then he did that multiple times where you really saw this beautiful product come together with this amazing storytelling and this amazing marketing moment. You know, and there, there of course, are many others in the industry, but... That's one that just I remember deeply. How do you know what people will buy? I mean, Steve Jobs, you mentioned, um, said uh, you don't do focus groups because people don't know yet what they will need in the future, but I know what they will need, so I'm going to make it for them. How do you yeah. know what people will buy? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think that is true when you are developing a new category. So you, if you go and you try to run focus groups and you do quantitative studies, and I've done many of those over the years, And, and you ask people, you know, will they buy this? What do they need? You, you can fall into the trap of just incrementally improving things that already exist in the marketplace. And so I, I agree with that statement when it really comes to developing broad new categories. There, there are just some people who I think have this innate ability to be able to understand kind of technology trends and gaps in the marketplace and, and be able to go fill them. I think there are others too, that it's not that you can't learn those skills, right? Over time and experience, you can start to see gaps for sure. So there is a time and a place to just sort of go with your gut 
scrap the focus groups and the and the market research and just you know bet on the idea. But I don't think it's fair to say that talking to your customers and asking what they need and where they have pain points and it, that you shouldn't do that either. I think that there's a huge role for deeply understanding your your customer base, the pain points, and then how you can uniquely you know, uh, unlock value for them. So I think, I think there's, there's a blend and there's a mix kind of depending on, you know, again, the product category and the specifics of, of what you're trying to achieve. You mentioned the trends when you um, reflect on the broader space you operate in. What are the, the most that we need to consider that will, will transform the world meaningfully over the next uh, 10 years? So there, there are sort of two that come to mind. You know, I've spent a lot of, well, most of my technology career in the communication and productivity uh, space. And so, you know, if I sort of focus in on that part of the, the market and, and think about the trends that, that we see happening now, and then we project out over the next five to 10 years, I think there are two that are going to fundamentally change the way in which work gets done. You know, if you think about the, the call it the modern workplace or digital transformation in the workplace, the, the first is perhaps, well, it has been, I think, overhyped and maybe overused, but I do think that with the large data sets that are being generated and the understanding of sort of users and customers and employees and organizations, how, how work is getting done that you have these data sets that open up the possibility to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence. And that's where the AI, I think, tends to be overhyped and that we've not delivered as an industry on, you know, the expectations. But I think that will that will truly start to play out in a way that is is going to transform how we get our work done, because the software and the technology is just going to be so much more helpful and is going to make us all, I think, um, so much more productive. So I think the first trend is, is seeing AI come to life and actually deliver tangible value. Let me just you. address uh, this one specifically. Peter Drucker observed what I later call the overshoot, undershoot. This was my Air Force experience, overshoot, undershoot syndrome, which is when a new category or a new technology begins to emerge. We overshoot our expectations in terms of how it will transform the world. Then we get disappointed. That's the first phase of the cycle. And because of that, we become cynical and, and say, well, it, it's never going to deliver. And, and that's why often in the second phase, it tends to actually over-deliver because that's the overshoot, undershoot. Now, we don't believe it's going to deliver, but it actually delivers truly transformative capabilities. So I've heard this now from couple of people from several people over the last several years that we are entering the the convergence zone where machine learning AI will not just at a high level but to individuals and to small businesses will transform meaningfully can you give me a for instance what will I be able to do differently five seven ten years from now that will be meaningful to my life and my work Yeah, maybe just a couple of very simple examples that, that I've experienced just recently, you know, coming to, to Google and being a heavy G Suite user, since I'm marketing it now, but there's, there are all these, I'll call them maybe small delighters that you experience. So for example, when you're typing an email inside of Gmail, 
it will start to predict the remainder of the sentence. So it's auto-completing, which is actually pretty amazing if you think about it. And I would say in my experience, you know, about 80% of the time, like it finishes my sentence for me. And so it's saving me the time that it takes for me to go and sort of, you know, finish out typing all these characters and the emails that I'm sending out. Very, very small example. Another one I think is in terms of calendar management. I think that the AI will start to help us understand and predict for us how we're spending our time and be able to set some some goals for us around, you know, who do I need to be spending more time with versus, boy, I'm really in this recurring one-on-ones, maybe on a project or with a team that is no longer as important in terms of what I got to go deliver in the next quarter, for example. So I think that, you know, just two very small examples of where I think AI and machine learning will just make us more productive and easier to get things done, manage our time and that sort of thing. But I agree with you. How do you answer the, those people that are either are cynical or are concerned that they therefore become products of someone else's engineering rather than yeah. of their own choices? I'm, I'm deliberately framing it in, in sure. this juxtaposition. How do you answer that concern? Yeah, I think a couple of things. One is that if the technology isn't actually helpful, then it ultimately won't get adopted. It won't get used. And, and, and it also will result in somebody else coming in and, and designing uh, and delivering a product that is helpful. So I think the first thing is, is that whatever you know, gets built in the, in the form of sort of AI-driven features, it will have to be grounded on helping the user and them seeing the value in it. Otherwise, it won't get used. There's just millions and millions of features that get built by all different types of, of product teams that never get used. I think that's the, the, the first thing. I think the second is, you know, as it relates to, you know, to AI, I do think, you know, there's been some great work done in the industry around a set of, you know, code of standards and ethics. And, and I think that is going to be an important part of ultimately delivering on the promise of AI is that I think the industry is going to have to step up and make sure that it's keeping the user you know, the, the human being, if you will, sort of at the center of what they're trying to achieve to actually help them, you know, be more productive, get more done, and, and quite frankly, live uh, richer lives. You were going to mention earlier the other trend that you had in mind. Yeah, in addition yeah. To the, the, the second one, and I would say for me personally, it's only in the last year that I feel like I've started to think more about and internalize the opportunities that I think that, that this technology is going to open up, but it's really around 5G. So that's another technology that we've heard about for a long time. And it's when you start to stitch together, and again, I'm coming at this more from you know the, the modern workplace, but when you start to stitch together AI, ML, large data sets, robotics, but now imagine a world where you have this ubiquitous, mega high speed internet connectivity that's always on everywhere. There, there starts to be some fascinating and I think amazingly powerful things that start to open up. New business models, but the way in which you manage your manufacturing facility, all these things, I think, I do think that it has the opportunity to fundamentally shift the way in which work is getting done, how processes are managed, supply chains are coordinated, 
in a way, you know, that could potentially be on par with what we saw, you know, with when the internet sort of really started to, to become a much bigger part of commerce and how business was getting done. So, you know, again, I think that I think those two things working together are going to be fascinating to see what, what unfolds. You uh, led an important team at Microsoft. Now you're leading an important team at Google. What, what are some of the big misconceptions people have about these large software platform companies? You know, I think the, the biggest misconception that I've observed is, is that I think that there are oftentimes, there's, there's oftentimes a lot of criticism around how these large platform companies operate in the marketplace. And I think, quite frankly, a lot of it is, is fair, more than fair and justified uh, in terms of, you know, are they engaging in anti-competitive types of practices? And again, you can, I think you can, you see these stories for all, almost every large tech company um, had to deal with some of these, these issues. And again, like I said, I think a lot of the criticism has been justified. But the misconception, I think, is being on the inside of a number of these companies, at the individual level, the, the person that is developing their product, the product manager that's helped understanding the customer need, the marketer who wants to be able to tell their story, they care deeply about that user, about that customer, about doing good and having impact in a positive way. I mean, I've just seen so many individuals and the passion they bring to their craft. And so I think that maybe sometimes this idea that these big platform companies, you know, collectively have done things in the marketplace that are, you know, rightfully scrutinized, but then understanding that at an individual level, there's so much care, passion, and desire to just do good, I think maybe is, is one of the biggest misconceptions that I've, that I've seen. With all that you know today, Kelly, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I use a couple of things. The first is to really follow your passion. And, and that's something I think that, you know, you, you, people will talk about. But it's always helped me in those moments where I, I knew I was ready to do something different, but I kind of wasn't sure what it was or is, was the time right. I think really listening to that inner voice and that inner self around, okay, at the end of the day, like, what do you love to do? Kind of goes back to your opening question is, is what gets you excited? What gets you energized? So the first piece of advice is around staying true to your, to your passion and your interests. The second is to have more courage. I, I worried a lot early in my career about, well, what if I make this move and, and, and should I, you know, change industries? Um, should I go to a smaller company? And, if I'm honest with myself, it, it came down to kind of a lack of courage. And mm. so I would say, you know, be brave and, and believe in yourself because amazing things can happen if you have the courage to, to follow your passion. And then the third is, I would say, you better enjoy the ride. It goes so fast. You know, you blink, you know, you, you all of a sudden you're like, look back and spend 20, 30 years of professional experience. And I just can't believe how quickly it goes. And, and I, the last thing I'd say is going back to one of my mentors from Microsoft, that leader of the engineering team, he would tell us, these are the good old days. And so that, those were the, that was during that startup phase. And so we would talk about these are the good old days. And, and I can't tell you how right he was. You just mentioned courage. 
What was the moment or a situation that compelled you to exercise courage, perhaps leadership, a courage either in confronting something in yourself or in your team or in the, in the company? What, what was the moment that you said, I need to step in with courage here? I think the one that is relatively recent is, is when I decided to leave Microsoft, which was only about a year and a half ago, I loved my experience at Microsoft, going back to work for so many amazing people. And I, and I felt a tremendous amount of pride in the business that I had worked on and helped build over the years and build up. And so for me, initially, I didn't realize it, but what I was really missing is I wanted to go back and build something new. I wanted to go back to those early days of Office 365, but I was really conflicted because it felt like it was such a big part of me and my life and my career and the people I just developed these amazing relationships with over 14 years. And so I struggled. I struggled with, should I leave to go do something different when I'm actually quite happy and enjoying the work that I'm doing and the people that I work with? And so I think that forced me to do a lot of like soul searching and then ultimately say, okay, I'm willing to take this risk. And so that required some courage to, you know, to kind of leave the safety and the known to go do this other thing. Two final questions. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? I think the first thing that I would keep would be really, really focusing on, I'll, I'll call it the understanding the opportunity. So, and, and that is whether it is a customer pain point that you have the opportunity to leave a gap in the marketplace, a better way of doing something. But I, I personally have really enjoyed over the years, just being able to clue into assess size and think through how would you go about trying to capture the opportunity. So call it respect the opportunity would be one thing that I absolutely want to be able to, to hang on to. I think the second one would be the collaboration. So being able to build trust every day with the people that you work with and know that if you're committed to their success, that they're going to give you everything that they have and that the power of the team is so, so much greater than any one individual. And so just being committed to, to being a great teammate and a great collaborator and everything that it takes, right, to really, truly enable world-class and, and outstanding collaboration. Thank you, Kelly, for this uh, rich exploration with you today. As we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures? Yeah, I would say, well, first of all, we thank you for having me. It's great to reconnect after a number of months. So much has happened in the world since you and I were last able to be together. I, I think the, you know, the piece of advice I would have would, I think, be very similar to the advice that I would try to give myself as a 25-year-old. But, but it, getting really, really in touch with understanding the things that get you excited and motivated so that's about knowing yourself and that takes time, right? You, you also have to give yourself the time and the space because I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was 22, 25, or even 30 years old. So continuing to be curious and allow yourself to go on that journey to truly understand what it is that you love to do. And then I think the second piece is just believing in yourself and being willing to take some risk, have some courage and try some things. And not everything that you're going to do is going to turn out the way that 
you initially thought. But I think if you trust in the journey, you know, you will arrive at the right destination. Thank you. Thank you so much, Avi, for having me. It's been a pleasure.